Hey dreamers, this is Kira from Buena Park, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To get your show to be everything that you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up so much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get started. Before we delve into today's story, I would like to thank everyone who has continued to support California Dreaming on Patreon. For a pledge as little as $1, you can gain access to all of the bonus content available exclusive for patrons, as well as receive a few perks from the show, as well as be entered into occasional drawings for prizes. I'd like to take the time to thank our newest patrons, Nicole M. and Emily C. Your generous contributions help with the cost of the production of the show, as well as the nice perks that go along with being a patron at the various levels. And if you would like to support California Dreaming, but wish to do so without having to subscribe to Patron, you can make a one-off donation through PayPal. So if you've got a dollar or two to spare, you can use our email, californiapod at yahoo.com to do so. Again, thanks to everyone who continues to generously support the show. It is greatly appreciated. And a note about today's episode. This is the second part of a series. If you have not yet listened to episode 66, you may want to pause here, go back and listen to that one first, and then come back to this episode so you could be caught up with today's story. Also, I must provide you with a warning. This episode contains graphic details involving the brutal death of a very young child. Some of the details you may find disturbing. This episode is not suited for children or anyone who may have difficulty discussing violence against young children. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In last week's episode, part one of this vacation series, where we traveled to England to hear the tale of James Patrick Bulger, we discussed young children who committed murder. I introduced you to John Venables and Robert Thompson, two 10-year-olds who abducted two-year-old James Bulger from the New Strand Shopping Center in Merseyside, England. We heard what the two boys ended up doing to the toddler. We discussed how many people actually witnessed the two walking along with an often distressed-looking as well as obviously injured young child. 
We talked about the investigation, the forensics, the victim, the suspects, the arrests, and how this case shook England to its very core. Today, we are going to pick it up from where we left off when Venables and Thompson were arrested and charged with the murder of little James Bulger. Thompson was arrested on Thursday, the 18th of February, six days after the abduction. He was interviewed that same day by two investigators, Detective Philip Roberts and Detective Constable Bob Jacobs. His mother, Ann Thompson, was seated by his side along with Thompson's attorney, and the whole interview was recorded on video. As many of us can imagine, it can't possibly be easy to sit there and essentially interrogate a 10-year-old about a crime such as this. Something as simple as reading Thompson his rights can be challenged, because who's to say the boy even understands or comprehends the legal rights he has given at the time the interview is commenced, or even at the time of his arrest. I don't know if Thompson was read his rights when he was taken into custody, but it seems like it was standard procedure to remind any suspect of these rights at the beginning of an interrogation. And as a side note, for any of us who are outside of England, and much of the UK as it were, the reading of one's rights varied from country to country, and in the United States it's known as the Miranda Rights. Many of us have heard this repeatedly on many of the true crime shows and shows that are fictionalized and things that we hear, watch, and listen to. You have the right to remain silent. If you give up that right, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, etc., right? Well, in England, it seems it's called the right to silence, and it applied to questioning and trial, and during the 1990s, these rights went through some changes. Before 1994, the rights were reduced for only suspects accused of terrorist offenses or those who are being questioned by the Serious Fraud Office or the Royal Ulster Constabulary. But in 1994, the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act changed this to include the rights to silence to be given to any person who was subject to police questioning in England and in Wales. Prior to 1994, which includes the year of the crime we are discussing, the warning generally varied depending on each police department, but it generally said, you do not have to say anything, but anything you say will be taken down and may be given in evidence. After the act, it was modified to read, You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. So, the questioning started off simple. They asked Thompson if he knew the difference between telling the truth and telling lies. He said that he did, but it did become apparent relatively quickly to those interviewing Thompson that he was able to dance around the truth, delve into some lies, and then come back to some fragments of the truth again, and he did so with tremendous ease. As though he had been well-versed already in his short ten years at looking at someone of authority straight in the eye and telling a bold-faced lie. 
He struck investigators as very cunning. He seemed used to this, based on his background, which we discussed in episode 66. But it was usually over more trivial issues, like whether or not he had ditched school, or whether or not he had finished his homework. And if his answers were challenged or questioned as being untrue, he would snap back to the harder questions with snotty responses like, that's what you think, or I was there, you weren't. Oh, I could just see myself if this were my kid or my student. I would be burning up inside with the answers coming from this little shit. But these questions, this wasn't his mom or his teacher asking him about his homework. These were detectives, and they had some serious questions about his involvement in the torture, beating, and murder of James Bolger. It wouldn't take long for his tough little demeanor to evaporate under the pressure of questioning, the crime that he was being accused of committing, and the charges that he was facing. He finally fessed up that he and his friend Venables had ditched school Friday the 12th. They already knew that. He admitted that they went to the New Strand Shopping Center and perused the shops, but they already knew that too. They knew more than that that the two of them were shoplifting as well, but Thompson conveniently did not mention that. Now here is where Thompson slipped back into his attempts at manipulation by lying to the investigators. Painting himself and Venables as mere witnesses, only onlookers, he said that he did see James that day at the Strand with his mom, Denise. He and Venables were playing on the escalator when they spotted the boy, but that was the extent of it. Now, red flags are going up right away with this answer, or admission as it were. Out of all the little children that were at the new strand that afternoon, why would Thompson admit to having noticed James and Denise? We've all been to the mall, right? Would you really be able to pinpoint one specific toddler like James, who is quite adorable, but rather nondescript nonetheless, as is his mom. There really isn't anything outrageously exotic or unusual about either one of them that would give anyone pause to take notice of them or recall them so vividly one week later. It would be a stretch for any of us, much less for 10-year-olds who can often be quite distracted and busy in an environment like a busy shopping center, much too busy to take notice of a toddler and his mom unless you were surveilling that specific toddler for nefarious reasons. But Thompson is steadfast. Yes, he saw James and Denise, but he insisted that he and Venables left the Strand, they stopped at the library, and then they went to their respective homes. Investigators took a break from the interview with Thompson. In another interrogation room, Venables was being interviewed at the same time by two other investigators. During the break, they got together and compared notes, and their stories were beginning to diverge from one another. Venables admitted to being with Thompson that the two had ditched school together, but he did not admit to being at the Strand that day. So with this information in hand, the interviewers went back into the room with Thompson and posed this question. Why do you think your friend John would tell a lie by insisting you two were not at the new strand that day? 
Thompson reported that they were together and that they went to the Strand and Venable said they were together and did not go to the Strand. What's the deal with the conflicting story? Well, Thompson mused that perhaps his friend John did something really bad. Okay. So Thompson continues in that vein that perhaps his friend may have told that baby to follow them and then maybe his friend lost the baby somewhere along the way. But he couldn't be certain because he never looked back at Venables or the baby, so he didn't know what was going on. But investigators kept at him with the pointed questions. They mentioned to him that they noticed that he had on what looked like the same jacket as one of the boys in the CCTV video is shown to be wearing. Thompson, of course, had an answer at the ready. Quote, Many jackets get sold the same as mine, unquote. They fired back at him, asking about his friend's jacket, which was more distinctive than his. And his response? Quote, yeah, well, he's not walking along with me, unquote. For the duration of the interview, Thompson was unwavering, composed, collected, very steadfast in his answers, for a 10-year-old, for sure. His short life had been rough all along. He wasn't going to be phased by cops. He wasn't admitting to any involvement in the abduction or murder of James Bulger. And here is an example of just how cunning Thompson was. The following is a portion of his interview with Detective Roberts. The detective says to him, We believe that you left with baby James and with John. Thompson replies, Who says? The detective answers, We say, Now. Thompson replies, No, I never left with him. The detective asks, Well, tell me what happened then. Thompson's reply, It shows in the paper that John had hold of his hand. You see what he did there? He managed to implicate John Venables without implicating himself, at least that's what he thought, by claiming he never saw anything going on behind his back, but he also stated that he was with Venables all day. He had this little cycle that he went through with detectives during his questioning. Just before he would get questioned into a corner, nearly being forced to answer some of the hard questions that if he had answered, it would be very damning for him. If he was caught in a lie and confronted straight away with it, he would begin to cry. At least he tried to look as though he was crying. Detectives took notice that there did not seem to be any tears streaming down his face. It was purely a diversionary tactic, pulled straight from the suspect playbook. And then... Just as soon as detectives backed off the hard questions, he would revert back to his flat, stoic demeanor that had been his default emotion. He claimed repeatedly that he never laid a finger on James Bulger. He laid the blame squarely on Venables. And when it finally got to the point in the evening that they had to inform him that he would not be going home, he again became belligerent not quite getting the fact that they weren't buying his story. He had admitted to so many of the activities that he and Venables participated in throughout the day, seeing him holding James's hands, 
that they all walked around together. He named several of the places that the three of them passed by, but he insisted that it was all his friends doing, and he expressed his fear that he was going to be blamed for something that he didn't do. And when he found out he was under arrest, he asked why he had to stay. It was John who took the baby. When the interview with Thompson picked up the next morning, they began talking about the items that had been shoplifted earlier in the day from the news strand. Thompson said it was Venables who took the paint, and it was he who threw the paint into James's eye. He claimed after that had happened, he went home. The last time he saw Venables and James, James was still alive. And whatever happened after that, he had no idea. Detectives had a question about the batteries, but as soon as they brought them up, Thompson's face became flushed in red. They asked him, what's wrong? Why have you suddenly begun to change colors at the mention of those batteries? Thompson explained that he was hot. Yeah, okay, kid. He continued with his denials, including denying having stolen the batteries. But this whole exchange stood out to the detectives questioning him. It was clear that Thompson was quite embarrassed when the subject of the batteries was brought up. So I want to ask you, does this stand out to you, dreamers? We talked about the batteries in part one. They were said to have been stuffed into James's mouth. Authorities had reason to suspect that they were inserted elsewhere as a part of the sexual element of the multitude of atrocious acts committed against James. But it was never really confirmed as to whether or not James had been sexually abused in any way. The pathologist did not conclusively determine those facts one way or the other. And ultimately, the batteries were found near the body on the ground. So it makes me wonder, why is Thompson so embarrassed by this line of questioning? My first thought is that he did, in fact, insert the batteries into James one way or another. And whichever way you look at it, that act alone is vicious and cruel. And I don't think it was something that he was expecting detectives to know was a part of the laundry list of things that they did to James's little body. It is very telling, this visceral reaction detectives noticed in an otherwise apathetic Robert Thompson. The batteries will always be a mystery, but this moment, when Thompson turned bright red at the mention of it, leads me to believe that something brutal was done to James with the batteries. And whatever it was, Robert Thompson did it. And for 25 years, he's kept those secrets buried deep inside him. And frankly, I don't really think anyone ever needs to know. So finally, after many hours of questioning and countless denials, Thompson, at the urging of his mother, finally began to come with some nuggets of truth. She implored him, this will be easier on you if you just tell them the truth. But he was convinced because he had that blood on his shoe that they found when they picked him up at his house that he was going to get the blame. And remember, it was his shoe impression on James's face as well. Truth or no truth, confession or no confession, the forensic evidence was already quite damning. 
He finally began to describe the scene at the railway embankment. But was it the truth? Only the two of them would know. But this is Thompson's versions of events. He painted Venables as a kid out of control with murderous intent. That he was the one who threw bricks at James's body. That it was he who found a big metal thing with holes in it and hit James with that as well. That Venables hit James with sticks. All the while, James was lying on the ground with his eyes still open, laying across the rail tracks. Venables was the one who took the batteries that he stole and threw them at James's face. And what did Thompson say that he was doing all the while his friend was in this frenzied attack? Thompson, the model citizen that he is, said that he tried with all his might to pull Venables away from James, pleading with him to stop this attack on the baby. But Venables continued on, ignoring the impassioned pleas of his friend. As detectives are listening to the tale Thompson is recounting, they're utterly astonished at what they're hearing, asking Thompson, why did John do all of this? To which Thompson had no answer, just, I don't know. When they continued to press Thompson, telling him that they believed that he took part in the attack on James, the only thing that he said he did was pinch the baby. That's it. His friend has launched a full-on pummeling of this baby. All the while, Thompson portrays himself as being there unwittingly, attempting to no avail to stop his friend, but yet he took some time to pinch James? You know, dreamers, I would believe that there is some semblance of the truth in that statement. Not that I don't believe Thompson was an active and very willing participant in the beating of James, because I believe that he did. But I wouldn't be surprised if the truth about the pinch came into the story when Thompson perhaps pinched James after the beating and torture that they had afflicted upon him. Once James ceased to move any longer, that he pinched him to see if the child would be responsive, if he would move or make a sound, to see for certain if James was dead. The pinch. That's what I think the pinch is. But that's only my guess. But it's the only thing that he'd really admit to when it came to his physical contact with James's body. I'm sure detectives scoffed at his answer, that he only pinched James. When they told Thompson that they believed that he hit James as well, again, his bratty answers, he said, well, that's what you think. Though Thompson only seemed to feign concern for himself, he did appear to feel the same for his mom as well, who was present throughout the duration of the interviews with her son, who was described as having been in stunned disbelief for the entire time. I know this was likely one of the worst moments of her life. And I know we talked about Thompson's upbringing in part one, that his mom did not have an easy go at this. And I certainly don't want to sit here and judge parents. Nobody likes that. But I have come to understand that both sets of parents of Venables and Thompson did not fare well when it came to public opinion. And I'm probably putting that lightly. 
The same thing happens in many cases when children are involved in crimes. We look to the parents and begin shaking our collective fingers at them, asking them how they could not see something like this coming. We do it here in the United States, especially with like school shooters, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, for example, who committed the Columbine shooting, or Adam Lanza, who committed the Sandy Hook shooting. The parents were vilified by the public, and the same can be said for the parents of Venables and Thompson, as it is my understanding that they were all ran out of town, forced into hiding with new identities. But still, sitting there with her child, being accused of such a crime, I can't help but feel a tinge of sympathy for her. I don't believe that she could have ever expected a thing like this to have happened. Could she have been more attentive? Sure. Could she have made more of an effort to make sure her boy made it to school each day? Of course. There are a million and one things that she could have done differently that could have changed the trajectory of this story. But I'm sure many of us wish that we could go back in time and fix something that we did. None of us are perfect parents. All of us do the best that we can. Even then, things don't always go the way that we hope. As Thompson answered the questions, answered to the crime, he would turn to his mom, much of the time speaking to her, telling her that he tried to stop John. He tried to get him off of James, but in Thompson's words, he just kept hitting him and hitting him and hitting him, and I couldn't do nothing about it. He was asked why he brought a rose to the memorial for James. He answered that he wanted James to know that he tried to help him, that he was thinking of him. He also said that he was afraid that James's ghost was going to haunt him. By the third day of questioning, Thompson would finally admit to touching James, but he said it was his attempt to move him away from the train tracks. This is how he got blood on his own shoes. But then, once he saw how much James had bled out, he put him back down because he didn't want his mom to get mad at him for getting stains on his clothes. He kept telling the detectives that he didn't think that Venables should get off easy for killing James, but he also didn't think that he should get in trouble either for having little or nothing to do with it. He even challenged the detectives to go and talk to their teachers, stating, quote, well, you can go ask our teacher who's the worst out of me and John, and she'll tell you John, unquote. He would also say that he had absolutely no reason to want to go out and kill a baby by telling detectives, I've got my own little baby brother, Ben. Why would I want to kill him when I have a baby of me own? If I wanted to kill a baby, I'd kill me own, wouldn't I? As they were preparing to wrap up their questioning of Robert Thompson, they saved the most difficult questions for the end. They told Thompson that James had some injuries to his genital area and that they believed that one or both of them had inserted the batteries into James. Of all the questions posed, these proved to be the most upsetting to Thompson. They wanted to know who took James's trousers and underwear off, but Thompson began crying, nearly losing it this time, screaming at his mom, I'm not a pervert, you know. How would you like me calling you a pervert? 
He said I'm a pervert. He said I've played with his willy. After this, Thompson began to refuse to answer any more questions, but detectives pressed on. What would John say you did to James? His answer? He would say I took off James's pants and played with his privates. The last thing Thompson admitted to was putting one brick on top of James's head after they laid him across the tracks. From the moment he was picked up for the murder of James Bulger, John Venables was in complete hysterics. Unlike his partner in crime, Thompson, who pretty much remained cool as a cucumber, with a spattering of fake tears and some emotion directed at his mother. Venables was terribly afraid of the detectives who were questioning him. They intimidated him, and he could not keep himself together at all. Things became so distressing for Venables during some points of the interview that they needed to take a break so he could try and pull himself together enough to at least form some kind of answers for the investigators, as there were numerous points Venables couldn't even speak. He was so panic-stricken. He wasn't telling quite as many lies as Thompson had throughout his interview, but he was definitely avoiding providing answers that were truthful. In the moments when he was somewhat calm, when the investigators and his mom were able to give him some encouragement to speak to the truth, he would open up about some of what happened the day he and Thompson walked out of the new strand with little James. Again, unlike Thompson, who, start to finish, denied nearly everything, all involvement, only admitting to a minor amount of participation in James's killing. Venables's mother was in the room, of course, but her being there caused him even more distress, to the point where detectives needed to speak to her privately in order to ask her to try and encourage her son to be calm, be reassuring, and to tell him, no matter what, that they will always love him. After that, it seemed Venables was more at ease and began opening up about his role and Thompson's role in the killing. In the early stages of the interview, Venables started off with painting a portrait of his friend Thompson as a very troubled kid who behaved badly who always got in trouble, who was always looking for trouble, and that he would often avoid being around him while they were at school. Thompson had such a bad reputation, none of the boys would even play with him or hang out with him, so Thompson mostly hung out with the girls, stating in his interview, quote, he's much of a girl, unquote. Venables described some of Thompson's odd habits, like collecting troll dolls because they were naked from the waist down, and in Venable's words, quote, it shows you their bum in that. He also told investigators that Thompson still sucked his thumb. But the one thing investigators noticed is Venable seemed quite taken with Thompson's bad streak. He almost liked that quality in him, and the fact that he was so willing to participate in bad behaviors, such as ditching school, and how he liked to go along with him, how they shoplifted together. Venables even described how much fun it was to go along with Thompson to do these things. Venables said that he would do these things with Thompson because all of his other friends were good kids and would never do these types of things with any of them. And he definitely wouldn't do these things on his own because he was too scared to. On Friday the 12th of February, Venables told investigators it was Thompson who suggested that they ditch school. So he decided to go along with him. 
He gave a very detailed account of the day that they spent together, that they went to the park, they went to some old railways, they walked around a cemetery. It was there, Venables said, that Thompson wanted to steal some flowers off of a grave, but Venables told him not to do that. He mentioned that Thompson stole the blue modeling paint and, as a prank, threw some of it on him. His story was quite elaborate, lots of details of his accounting of that day, but he never once mentioned being at the New Strand that afternoon. Investigators eventually told him that Thompson had told them that they were at the New Strand that day, which caused Venables to become upset again, yelling, claiming that Thompson was a liar. This line of questioning went a little something like this. The detective stated, quote, You see, Robert says that he was with you, and that you were indeed in Boodle at the New Strand together. Unquote. Venables replied, quote, We wasn't. The detective said, quote, Robert says you were. Venables finally fessed up to part of it, stating, quote, Yeah, we was, but we never saw any kids there. We never robbed any kids. The detective asked, quote, So you were in the Boodle New Strand? And it was at this point. Venables' mom, Susan, became very angry and shouted at him, Was you in Boodle Strand? Venables again falls apart, breaking down into tears, crying at his mom, Yeah, but we never got a kid, Mom. We never, we never got a kid. The detective had to remind Susan Venables that she mustn't get angry with her son. Venables grew even more distressed and hysterical, pleading to his mom, But we never got a kid, Mom. We never. We saw those lads together. We did. We never got a kid, Mom. Mom, we never got a kid. You think we did. We never, Mom. We never. He stood up as he implored his mom to believe him. But all she had to say to him was, quote, If I would have known all this now, John, I would have had you down to the police station right away instead of them banging on my front door and making a show of me in the street. On the second day of questioning, investigators using the information that they got from Thompson confronted Venables with some of the things that his friend had said in his telling of the events of that day. They told him that Thompson pointed the finger directly at him, that he was the one that took the baby. This, again, sent Venables flying off the handle. He leapt out of his seat and repeatedly yelled to his mom, I haven't touched a boy. I never killed him. Mom, mom. We took him, and we left him at the canal. Mom, that's all. He was so distressed as he had tried to explain himself to his mother. Detectives pressed on, unfazed by Venables' outburst in tears, asking him how it was that he got the baby from the strand. He began to say something about walking around the strand by himself, but he suddenly realized that he was contradicting his earlier statements with this new story. He knew he was getting caught in lies, and the harder detectives pushed, the more trapped Venables became. The more upset he grew, the more the truth was beginning to seep out of him. Detectives could see that Venables was on the verge of letting the truth spill out of him, but he was so afraid of admitting to what he and Thompson had done while his mom looked on, afraid of what she might think if she were to know. Both she and his father, Neil, did their best to comfort their son to reassure him that everything would be okay if he would just come with the truth. They promised that they would love him, 
no matter what happened, no matter what he said. They promised and they implored him to be truthful. Going over to sit with his mom, he crawled onto her lap and he cried while his mom did what she could to comfort him. And then he said those four words that detectives had been waiting for from these boys. I did kill him. And then he asked his mom, What about his mom? Will you tell her I'm sorry? Now, as elated as they were to have this confession from Venables, there was one thing about it that bothered them. The eye. This had them curious. They felt as though Thompson played a major role in the crime as well, but Venables was saying I, not we. Was there a chance that Thompson wasn't involved, or perhaps to a lesser extent than Venables? They continued on to get more details to fill in the blanks now that they were getting some semblance of the truth, and this confession was a huge breakthrough for them and for Venables. It could quite possibly have opened the floodgates for the truth to finally be spoken. Venables told investigators that it was Thompson who shoplifted the paint in the store at the Strand. When they noticed a young child, Venables claimed Thompson said, let's get this kid lost. This was the boy in the T.J. Hughes department store. They enticed him to follow them until the boy's mother caught up with them and got him back. That boy would have been their victim if mom wasn't able to find them for certain. And it wasn't long after that that they saw James near the entrance of that butcher shop. Venables acknowledged that it was he, indeed, that approached James first and held out his hand for James to take hold. But when it came to killing James, that was all Thompson's idea. He claimed that they wandered around with James, they discussed looking for his mom, but Thompson did not want to do that. He likely realized that they were in deep trouble as it were, and if they were to try and give James back to his mom, they'd be caught for sure. So Thompson came up with the idea to toss James into the canal to make all of this look like an accident. And this part really sends chills down my spine. Thompson attempted to get James to lean in towards the water of the canal with the hopes that he would lose his balance and fall in and drown. However, James, wise to the fact that this was not safe, even at his young age, refused to get close to the canal's edge. Then Venables claimed that for some reason, Thompson lifted James and threw him down onto the ground. This, I assume, is the drop onto his head that caused the injuries that passerbys began to notice. Venables then said they ran away from James, who was lying on the ground crying because they were afraid of getting caught hurting the boy, but they decided to come back. Venables either could not or would not explain why they did this other than they wanted to walk around with a baby. Venables said it was he who took James's anorak jacket off of him and tossed it up into some trees as they made their way towards the railway embankment. At this point of his story, Venables began to slow down. The closer his story got to the actual killing, the more anxiety Venables began to display. He told investigators that he did not want to discuss, quote, the worst bit, unquote. This next part is going to get back into some of the details of the beating and torture of James. 
please fast forward for the next couple minutes to skip this section. What Venables was willing to discuss when it came to the torture and the beating, he laid the blame squarely on Thompson, just as Thompson had laid the blame on him as well. Venables said it was Thompson who threw the bricks and stones at James. It was Thompson who threw the metal pole that they found at him as well. It was Thompson who threw the blue paint onto James's face and into his eye. And when James began to cry, Thompson asked of him, Is your head hurting? We'll get a plaster on. The only thing Venable said he did was throw two bricks and some small stones. And he did so aiming only for James's arms, not his head. At that point, according to Venables, Thompson picked up a brick and threw it directly at James's head. James let out a loud cry and fell backwards. However, he managed to make it to his feet again. But Thompson wanted him to stay down. Venable said he tried to stop him from further injuring James, but Thompson kept attacking him, calling him names and screaming at him. Once Thompson found that heavy iron bar and struck James in the head with it, James fell face down onto the tracks. Venables also claimed that once James was down for the last time, he asked Thompson, Don't you think we've done enough now? And then he says they ran off. Venables continued on in his interview to explain that he didn't feel as though he was mad at James, stating, quote, I didn't really want to hurt him. I didn't want to hurt him or nothing because I didn't want to hurt him with strong things, only light things, and I deliberately missed. Despite the fact that he was saying he wasn't angry, the interviewers noted that during the questioning, Venables was noticeably aggravated when speaking about James and answering questions. He grew very tense, and they could even see that his fists were clenched very tightly. So Venables is definitely minimizing here, downplaying his involvement in the beating and torture of James, and he will continue along this vein for much of his interview once the confession came. When it came to who it was that removed James's trousers and underwear, Venables said it was Thompson who took those items off, though he did admit to helping take James's shoes off. When questioned as to the reason the clothing was removed, he either was unable or refused to explain the reasons, though he did say that Thompson had taken the underwear and covered James's face with them. When it came to the physical attack on James, Venables would only admit to kicking him lightly, as well as punching him lightly in the torso and the face. He stated that it was Thompson who kicked James in the groin and in the face about ten times in all. That was his best guess, and Venables claimed to have done none of that. The one thing, though, that seemed to rattle Venables the most was the subject of the batteries. When detectives brought it up, he would fall apart again into hysterics and claimed that he had no idea what Thompson did with the batteries. He became so upset when he was questioned about them, and if anything were done to James's genital area, he started to punch his dad who was seated next to him. Whatever it was about those batteries, both Venables and Thompson 
had very powerful emotional reactions to the questioning. And the reason behind that can only be speculated upon. By Saturday the 20th of February, the investigators on the case had pretty much put both Venables and Thompson through the ringer. The boys were completely drained, overwhelmed, and distressed after days of questioning, and it was believed that enough evidence had been collected by this time to charge both John Venables and Robert Thompson with the murder of James Boulder. So they decided to finish up the interview process and move forward with the case. To detectives on the case, both boys were extremely challenging to work with. They had both told many lies, but they both had provided a great deal of information in their own ways, and detectives were able to piece together what they believed to be the most likely scenario. Thompson's way of going about things was to deny everything, calling everyone who claimed to have seen him that day with James a liar. But when he did offer up some bits and pieces of information, he seemed to be drawing a little bit closer to the truth in some aspects. Of the two, Thompson was most definitely the more cunning and manipulative one, who tended to turn on the waterworks when it was convenient for him in order to avoid answering questions or to attempt to distract from the discussion. As for Venables, when his interviews were concluded, he seemed a bit more consistent in some aspects. He resoundingly blamed Thompson for the entire ordeal, but in the end, he did confess to much more than Thompson had. Venables was a bit more creative with the lies that he told, however, he much more easily gave in to revealing the truth than Thompson did. But his intense emotional distress made his interview process much more challenging than Thompson's. Next up, investigators wanted to be shown exactly the way the boys walked along from the new strand to the railway embankment where they ultimately murdered James. So they decided the best way to do this was to take each boy separately, but around the same time in unmarked cars so nobody would be paying attention to their vehicle. Venables was the first to go to give his story as to the way they walked that day. One question he asked of detectives that stood out was if they were able to get fingerprints off of skin. I'm not sure how or if his question was answered, but I'm certain it was a very telling question that he was asking, pretty much an acknowledgement that he most likely had his hands on James, and he was worried about his prints being found on his body. But he had previously admitted to holding James's hand. When Thompson was taken on the ride to show the way that they walked, his main concern was the possibility of seeing Venables. He was very concerned. They both had anxiety about running into each other, as I imagine they had not seen one another since the days prior to their arrest. Were they interacting in between the time they killed James until the time they were picked up by police? I'm uncertain, but detectives knew that they were upset with one another. They both pointed the finger of blame at each other, and they both told a plethora of lies about each other in their interviews. The same evening of the 20th of February, both Venables and Thompson were charged not only with the abduction and murder of James, but also the attempted abduction of the boy at the T.J. Hughes department store. And again, just in as the interviews, Venables cried 
and Thompson blamed Venables. As you can imagine, the community of Merseyside was absolutely gobsmacked by this crime. The brutality, the cruelty, and most astounding, the age of the two boys charged in committing it. 10. By Monday, the media was in a frenzy over this. The world's eyes were now focused on England. The Monday after the charges were brought against Venables and Thompson, the crush of media outlets and reporters descended upon the school where the boys had attended. They were trying to see if the school would release pictures of the two of them, but they also wanted to talk to any of their classmates who knew them. It was quite a scene. Things were even worse at the Venables and Thompson's homes. A mob mentality had formed. Their parents were vilified in public opinion. The anger and vitriol towards the boys' parents was nearly as bad as it had been towards the boys, if not worse, because the angry throngs knew where to find them and gathered at their respective homes, surrounded them, and eventually forced the families to flee the area. The community wanted nothing more than to see Venables and Thompson face the same punishment that they had inflicted upon James, and the same for their parents as well. And the media seemed to feed into the anger that grew exponentially with each passing day. The Sun newspaper published a photo of Venables while on his way to court holding a lollipop with the article that harangued the easy lives that they were supposedly afforded while in jail. The fact that Venables had a piece of candy caused everyone who saw the article to collectively lose it. How could they be given such luxuries after what they did to baby James? After Venables and Thompson were taken into custody, they were essentially given all new lives, new identities for their safety. Once these two became known as the boys who tortured and killed James Bulger, they quickly became the most hated people in the country. It is not unusual for child killers to be particularly despised inside jails and prisons, and the fact that these two were only 10 years old had absolutely no bearing on that sentiment. They were kept in a distinct, isolated housing unit, and they were not only kept away from other juvenile offenders, but from each other as well. They were passed off as being older than 10 or 11 as their birthdays were to pass that August of 1993. They were assigned different criminal convictions. What those convictions happened to be, I could not ascertain. But they were in no way attached to the murder of James Bolger. This raised some concerns about their time spent alone in secured housing units. They had these new stories to work with. They were not going to be known by their real names or by their real crimes. Some would argue that this would not only encourage but perpetuate the lies that the two of them would come up with about their crime. Even worse, perhaps enable them to suppress the reality of what truly happened that day. And from that point forward, were they to be interviewed or perhaps speak to the crime at trial, they would have become practiced liars. Perhaps the truth would stay buried beneath the veil of a whole new existence. But the one thing neither boy was going to be able to get before trial would be any kind of counseling from any professionals in order to maintain their memories and the accounting of the crime. 
However, going into trial, they both steadfastly denied the beating and murder by and large, while at the same time accusing the other of the worst things done to James. Venables was the only one who revealed any semblance of responsibility for the murder when he said, I did kill him. And on the 14th of May, 1993, Venables and Thompson appeared before the Liverpool Crown Court and they both pleaded not guilty to the charges. The judge ordered the case to be tried in Preston, located near the housing units where the boys were being kept. Venables continued to be unable to maintain his composure every step of the way throughout the hearing. He panicked and he became so distraught when an attempt was made to even have him participate in the lineup. He hyperventilated throughout his arraignment and both his attorney and the prosecution did not feel like he would be capable of actively participating in his own defense. Thompson, in contrast, maintained his usual stoic, cold facade. Prior to the trial, the parents of both Venables and Thompson were interviewed extensively. Venables' mother and father both held the opinion that their boy was good, a well-behaved child, but may have some underlying issues with hyperactivity. His mom was always concerned that her son was being bullied at school and claimed for that reason that she had moved him to a new school where he ultimately met Robert Thompson. It was her impression that her son had pity for Thompson because he did not have a lot of friends. But one of the reasons it's believed he didn't have a lot of friends was because he was known to be a troublemaker and other kids tended to keep their distance. Venables' mother also stated that she grew concerned over time that Thompson was regularly bullying her son as well. Whether these claims have any real validity or if it's her way of perhaps trying to make sense of what her son is accused of or possibly casting the bulk of the responsibility onto Thompson or both can only be speculated upon. Her son may very well have been bullied it seems like a common thing young people who commit crimes tend to point to. I again look at the Columbine shooters, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. It is commonly believed that the two of them were bullied in school, leading to the subsequent shooting that they would go on to commit. But others would say that there was no bullying going on whatsoever. It all depends on who you're talking to and your perceptions of what took place rises to the levels of what we define as bullying. Either way, it seems a common way of minimizing or attempting to explain the violent actions of children by their parents. Venables had an older brother named Mark and a younger sister named Michelle, both of whom were special needs students. Mark Venables struggled with both learning and speech disabilities and attended a school designed to facilitate his additional educational needs. John Venables himself, the middle child, it's been surmised may have envied the extra attention both his older and younger siblings garnered due to their disabilities. I am not a child psychologist, and I do not have any siblings myself, and I only have one child of my own, so I don't have a great deal of insight in terms of sibling dynamics. Perhaps we can discuss it in the Facebook group. If anyone has any ideas as to how the middle child can often feel like a void that gets ignored, Please come, share, and enlighten us. Venables' parents also cycled in and out of their relationship, breaking up and making up over and over again, 
which certainly could have wreaked havoc on his sense of stability and security within his own family dynamic. Venables is described as having struggled with self-esteem issues and often grew angered or defensive if anyone would suggest his family were in any way dysfunctional or otherwise not the idyllic picture of a home life. He was known to have made attempts to hide the fact that his siblings struggled developmentally and cognitively, and that his parents could not maintain a stable household. The doctor who spent time examining Venables prior to his trial found that there were no signs of any organic disability or apparent brain damage of any sort that would have led to any type of behavioral issues, so he was deemed fit for trial. Psychological profiles concluded that Venables was free of any mental illness. He was not found to suffer from depression, nor did he experience any type of hallucinations or delusions. His temperament was found to be extremely fragile. He was often filled with anxiety, and he had difficulties focusing, and he fidgeted a great deal. He was unable to engage in any discussion regarding the murder, and if any attempts were made to speak to him about it, his anxiety took over and he couldn't focus and he would hyperventilate, become too distressed to speak and no answers could be given to the questions that he was being asked. It was reported by his mother that he told her that he was haunted by the events of the day when James was murdered. One image in particular burned into his mind, blood being expelled from James's mouth. She also said that her son fantasized about saving James from being hurt and bringing him back to his mother. Now dreamers, I pondered whether or not Venables and Thompson understood what it meant to die. If they understood the finality of what they were doing to James. I thought back to the years that I spent studying child development, the stages in life when they truly begin to understand intangible feelings. Like when our two-year-old does something bad, like bite or hit another child, and we force them to apologize. The emotion of sorrow isn't fully developed yet, that we are simply making them go through the motions of an apology. It's more for the parents, both of the biter and the bitee. But when you think about it, is a two-year-old really wallowing in the depths of true sorrow and regret? Probably not. So I wondered, did these two boys really grasp what it meant to end James's life? When asked about it, Venables expressed that he understood that death meant that a person could never come back, and he was also aware of the concepts of heaven and hell, and he did believe those places to be eternal. Venables also reported that he was afraid of watching TV shows and movies that depicted violent acts and he often closed his eyes and plugged his ears with his fingers when he anticipated bloody scenes. I don't know, dreamers. When my kid was 10, it was a steady stream of fairly odd parents, Phineas and Ferb, SpongeBob, Hannah Montana, the sweet life of Zack and Cody, iCarly, and whatever other show that was on Nickelodeon or Disney Channel. We just weren't anticipating blood and guts while we relaxed between getting home from school and making dinner. The psychiatrist did note that Venables seemed to have an intense attachment to his mother, and when he was asked if he could have three wishes that were to come true, he answered, one, 
to be free from the secure unit. Two, to turn the world into a chocolate factory. And three, to live forever with money, no accidents or illnesses. And it was clear that he understood the difference between right and wrong. And when he was asked if he could be anyone in the world, he said that he would like to be Rocky Balboa, either that or Sonic the Hedgehog, because, as Venables put it, he can run fast and save his friends. John Venables was either unable or unwilling to speak about the murder of James Bolger. Robert Thompson, however, was willing to an extent. The psychiatrist who was assigned to meet with him brought some dolls along, three of them. One of them represented Thompson, one represented Venables, and one represented James. Also on display was a set of railroad tracks as well as some miniaturized versions of all the weapons that were used against James. Bricks, stones, iron bar, etc. Thompson began to recreate the scene that day. He picked up the John doll and used it to violently beat the James doll. Meanwhile, he maneuvered the Robert doll around in a way to show that it was trying to stop the beating that the John doll was committing on the James doll. He engaged the Robert doll and the John doll in an intense struggle. He showed the Robert doll yanking the John doll so hard that both dolls tumbled to the ground. The psychiatrist attempted to have Thompson use the dolls to show how the James doll had received some of the injuries to his genital areas, but Thompson was either unwilling or unable to do so. The psychiatrist continued with the questioning regarding the sexual abuse but Thompson began to grow anxious and quite defensive. He was more than willing to reenact nearly the entire attack on James, save the sexual aspects. He was asked if the crime was one that was sexually motivated, and Thompson had no response, verbally or any that could be read in his facial expressions. Again, the flat affect. He did not seem moved either way by the question, and he would not confirm or deny anything involving any sexual abuse committed against James. Neither boy ever would. Thompson was asked how he felt about James. He really didn't have much of an answer, though he did remark that he was quieter than his own baby brother Ben. But he did say that James would not stop asking for his mom. And... That's a detail that just breaks my heart. Thompson described Venables as the one who did not like babies, but he himself was quite fond of babies, and he was so angry with Venables that if he had the chance, he would kick him in the face. Encouraging Thompson to act out his feelings, the psychiatrist suggested that he go ahead with the dolls, so Thompson used one doll to beat up the other doll. When Thompson was asked about his family, he became very defensive and standoffish, especially when it came to his mother's alcoholism. And he spoke of a recurring dream he had where he sees himself chasing after someone, then charging into the street, having the dream end by him being run down by a vehicle. When the psychiatrist was finished assessing Thompson, the report concluded that his level of intelligence was above average. 
Like Venables, he showed no signs of any type of mental illness, nor did he struggle with depression. And he did also demonstrate knowing the difference between right and wrong. However, it was noted that Thompson showed some symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder related to the killing of James. On the 1st of November, 1993, Venables and Thompson, now age 11, faced trial for the abduction and murder of James Boulder, and they would be tried in adult court, a decision that would later be criticized as unfair to the boys. Because of their small stature due to their young ages, the Preston Crown Court arranged for special raised platforms to be constructed in order to allow them to see over the railings. This would be where the two of them would be seated for the duration of the trial. Later on, the matter of this platform became an issue, the argument being that this was an egregious way of placing the children on display and this would constitute an unfair trial for the defendants. Another modification made inside the courtroom included all of the seats in the public gallery being securely bolted down to the ground so no one in the audience would be able to pick one up and throw it across the courtroom. The trial would be held during approximately the same time school would be in session, which was from 10.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Side note, that's a really nice elementary school schedule. My daughter went to school from 8.05 a.m. until 2.45 p.m. I would have loved that 10.30 a.m. schedule. Anyway, Venables and Thompson were set to be tried together, and the judge presiding over the trial was Judge Sir Michael Moreland. One of his first orders of business was to order that Thompson be referred to as Child A and Venables be referred to as Child B. They were to remain anonymous, but those in the courtroom got a very, very good look at them, especially since they were up on those platforms. And those courtroom observers were paying very close attention to the behaviors, the body language, and the facial expressions of both Thompson and Venables. While seated on that raised platform, Thompson looked as though he had grown a little bit, put on a bit of weight, and looked a little bit older than his mugshot from the day that he was arrested. He mostly stared blankly ahead or up towards the ceiling of the courtroom. He seemed tired or bored or both. He would kick off his shoes and stretch and yawn, very rarely showing any kind of outward emotion. This led to the common belief that Thompson was guilty. His family was not present in the courtroom. The only person seated next to him was his social worker, and both of them appeared morose and glum. And the social worker interacted very minimally with Thompson. The social worker appeared as stoic as he often did, and rarely, if at all, showed any type of warmth or fondness towards him. It is not uncommon in cases that involve two perpetrators, whether they are children or full-grown adults, that there is typically one that is the leader, the one who calls the shots, and the other is a more submissive follower. Those looking on, those who had a first-hand glance at the young boys on trial for murder, people quickly came to the conclusion that child A, Thompson, was the mastermind behind the murder of James Bolger based on his lack of emotion 
an all-around chilly disposition. But when it came to Venables, he came across as more filled with remorse. He appeared anxious and stressed. He constantly turned around to look at his mom just to make that connection with her. His eyes darted around the room. The nervousness in him was palpable. When he would become increasingly upset, he would slump down into a seat and he would try and hide his face with the lapels of his suit. He flinched at noises in the courtroom. He seemed to squint at the bright lights. His reactions to every minute detail was quite visible. Sometimes, he would nervously look over at Thompson. For what reason? I don't know. Maybe a bit of comfort or reassurance that he wasn't all alone in this? But he might as well have been. Thompson would all but ignore any glances Venables made in his direction. James's family attended every day of the trial with the exception of James's mother. She just couldn't do it. The murder of her son was horrendously upsetting for her, as anyone could imagine. She was constantly hounded by a crush of media that never let up. And on top of this, by the time the trial commenced, she was seven months pregnant. At the opening of the trial, Thompson's attorney immediately brought up to the court that there was no way for his client to get a fair trial. The newspaper publications were demonizing both boys, fanning the flames of public fury directed towards them, describing Venables and Thompson as evil, monstrous fiends. Also, he wanted a couple pieces of evidence thrown out two pictures of injuries to James's head that he felt as though would be damaging to his client's case due to the potential emotional effect that they would have on the jury. But the judge denied his request. Because of the age of the boys at the time of the murder took place, the prosecution was tasked with having to show proof that both Venables and Thompson knew and understood what they were doing was inherently wrong, stating during his presentation to the jury, quote, you can properly be satisfied that each of them knew it was seriously wrong to take a young child from his mother, to try and to do so, and to use such extreme violence on a child of such tender years. The jurors were given files which contained all the photographic evidence of the crime, and it was obvious that they were visibly shaken by what they were looking at. Mrs. Venables wept in this moment. Her son leaned over the rail in an attempt to comfort her. And then there was the matter of what became known in the British tabloids as the Liverpool 38. The 38 individuals who witnessed Venables, Thompson, and James make their way along the route from the New Strand to the railway embankment. Each of them took the stand, one right after the other, to describe the place along the route where they each witnessed the children. Unfortunately, several of them changed their stories from their original statements that they had given to police in the days following the abduction and the murder. And the reason for this was a result of the deep feelings of guilt that many of them had felt that they had not done enough to stop Venables and Thompson from marching James to his death. The cab driver, the bus passenger, the elderly woman walking her dog. They all recounted what they saw, but those close to the investigation could tell straight away that they were changing their statements due to their remorse for not intervening. 
Now, I did say this in part one. There is no way that any of them could have known what was to befall James. Nobody would have thought that these young boys holding James's hands were on their way to murder him. Judge Moreland would later say of the Liverpool 38, quote, Many of the witnesses were doing the humdrum things of everyday life on that Friday afternoon when wholly unaware that they were caught up in the last few tragic hours of James Boulder's tragic life. Neither Venables nor Thompson would speak a word at trial, nor would they participate beyond sitting in their seats on their raised platforms. They did not take the stand, and they were very rarely spoken to directly at any point during the trial. They did speak to the jury, however, through the more than 20 hours of recorded video of their police interviews, all of which were played in court for the jury. Though Thompson was portrayed as the one who masterminded the plot to abduct James, it soon came to be believed that Venables was the one who had the idea of taking him to the railway embankment. It was also apparent that neither defendant understood the legal jargon of what was going on, as they were not of an age where they were capable of comprehending. James's mother, as I stated, did not appear in court, but she wrote a statement that was read on her behalf for the jury. And they had a great deal of evidence to look over, evidence that was quite damning for the defendants. They had security video from the Strand showing them walking off with James, holding his hand. They had a box that contained 27 blood-spattered bricks and stones. They had James's blood-soaked clothing. They had the tin of blue paint and the 22-pound or 10-kilogram rusty iron bar with the holes in it, which is actually called a railway fish plate. And... I had to look it up because I did not know what a fish plate was. It's a joint that is bolted to two ends of rail tracks to join them together. If it had been called a joint bar, I most likely would have known what that was. Anyway, the forensic pathologist took the stand and went over James's injuries one by one. Many of them had been injuries to his legs after his trousers and underwear were removed. He also pointed out the shoe print that was a match to Thompson's shoe, which did have James's blood on it. This was irrefutable proof that Thompson, despite his denials, was indeed a participant in the beating of James. How else would your shoe print end up on the face of a baby? The pathologist testified it was not possible to determine which injury ultimately caused James's death. As there were so many, it could have been any number of them. The brain damage James sustained was massive, and he did have a hemorrhage in his brain. An important question raised in this unprecedented case, did Venables and Thompson have a clear understanding of the difference between right and wrong? This was particularly important for the prosecution who needed there to be no question that the boys knew what they were doing was wrong. Dolly in Capax is a Victorian concept that was established and recognized to protect children from corporal punishment. Historically, 
Children who ran wild and committed crimes were executed for their crimes. Dolly and Capax provided that children were not capable of wrongdoing because they did not have the ability to understand the consequences for their misbehaviors. In order to argue for or rebut this issue, Venables and Thompson's teachers were summoned to testify. Psychiatrists who examined and interviewed the boys were also called, and they all concluded that both of the defendants understood the brutality of the crimes that they were committing against James. The prosecution played the videotaped interviews that took place over a number of days with each boy separately, and these recordings showed that each of them understood the charges that they were facing. As they watched the videos, seeing Venables hysterically crying definitely impacted everyone in the courtroom and observers in the gallery did notice that each boy was much more attentive to the videos being played as they were quite curious as to what the other had said about the crime. They both appeared quite aggravated as they, for the first time, watched and listened as the boys accused each other of the killing of James. Thompson, who had been able to keep his cool during most of the trial, became quite dismayed when he listened to his former friend say that he often acted like a girl because he enjoyed playing with dolls. And Venable sat there and listened and watched as his former friend placed the blame for the entire beating of James onto him. In the end, the lead prosecution counsel was able to successfully shoot down the Dolly Inca Pax principle. Both Venables and Thompson could be legally held responsible for their actions. They were considered capable of mischievous discretion, which means they both had the ability to act with criminal intent, as they were both mature enough to understand that their actions were severely wrong. As the trial wound down to the final closing arguments, the prosecution proclaimed that both Venables and Thompson should be held liable equally. Neither one was more or less culpable than the other, stating, quote, They preferred, you may think, to avoid detection, which was clearly a greater priority than James's well-being. Together, they abused James. Robert Thompson delivered a pervasive kick, while John Venables chose to shake James. Venables led him from the strand, with Thompson leading the way. At the tracks, their roles reversed. Thompson carried him up onto the railway embankment, with Venables leading the way. They each heard each other lie to adults. If ever a crime was committed jointly and together, this was that crime. They were clearly both together as James sustained his terrible injuries. The defense's closing attempted to minimize the intent. They pointed out that neither Venables nor Thompson had ever committed any sort of act of violence prior to the torture, beating, and murder of James. They had only been known to shoplift and be habitually truant from school. The defense argued that if this had been a planned killing, they could have easily done so by drowning James in the canal or tossed him in front of high-speed traffic. That would have been the easy way to kill the baby, right? If the plan all along was to kill James, why in the world would they take such a long walk through some of the most well-traveled sections of Liverpool? And not only that, but engage in conversations with numerous witnesses and passers-by. It didn't make sense, the defense argued. If the boys were intent on killing James, 
then they would not have allowed anyone to have the potential to stop them from doing so. They explained to a number of adults that they encountered that they found James at the bottom of a hill. They would not have done this if the plan was to kill, the defense said of their clients. Thompson's attorney further argued that the boys became exhausted by the time all of this was needing to come to an end. They had pulled off this very misguided, this very ill-thought-out prank, and that they simply did not know how to put an end to it, that they were at a loss as to what to do with James. They just didn't think that far ahead. As children, they were incapable of that sort of forethought. They were leery of just leaving him abandoned, and they certainly didn't feel like they could turn him over to an adult in the condition in which he was in. Thompson's attorney threw Venables under the bus, claiming that it was he who took charge of the entire abduction and murder, reminding the court that it was Venables who uttered the words, I did kill him. As for Venables' attorney, he played up the fact that his client was much more visibly emotional and distraught over the entire ordeal, that Thompson was clearly the more malevolent one, the one with the mean streak, the more troubled of the two. And he did admit on behalf of his client that he was a participant in what happened to James, but it was minimal and he never wanted to kill the baby. The judge made it clear to the jury that the issue to be considered was not whether or not Venables or Thompson planned to kill James when they abducted him. The issue was not whether they planned to kill James as they walked along from the New Strand through the streets of Liverpool. The issue to be considered was, did Venables and Thompson intend to murder James at the railway embankment? The case was handed over to the jury for deliberations on Wednesday, the 24th of November, 1993, after three weeks of testimony. The jury came back with a verdict the same day that they were given the case to deliberate. When word came back that they had reached a decision, James's mother, Denise, got the news and for the first time showed up in the courtroom along with James's father, Roger. Robert Thompson and John Venables were found guilty of the murder of James Bulger. Venables openly wept. Thompson was motionless. And then the judge spoke to the convicted murderers. Quote, the killing of James Bulger was an act of unparalleled evil and barbarity. This child of two was taken from his mother on a journey of over two miles and then on the rail line was battered and beaten to death without mercy. Then his body was placed across the rail line so it would be run over by a train in an attempt to conceal his murder. In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and wicked. The sentence that I pass on you both is that you should be detained during Her Majesty's pleasure in such a place and under such conditions as the Secretary of State may now decide. You will be securely detained for very, very many years until the Home Secretary is satisfied that you have matured and you are fully rehabilitated and that you are no longer a danger to society. So real quick, for those of us not familiar, Her Majesty's Pleasure 
or if applicable any time if ever there came a time Queen Elizabeth II were no longer to reign, His Majesty's Pleasure then is a legal term that refers to an undetermined length of a sentence for some prisoners. It is based on the idea that legitimate authority for government comes from the crown, having its origins in the United Kingdom, but is used throughout the Commonwealth where Queen Elizabeth is the reigning monarch. Antigua and Barbuda, Australia, the Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Solomon Islands, Tuvalu, and the United Kingdom. And then the judge in the case did something that was unheard of. He ruled to allow for the lifting of the reporting restrictions and allowed for the names of John Venables and Robert Thompson to be public, stating, quote, I did this because the public interest overrode the interest of the defendants. There is a need for an informed public debate on crimes committed by young children. John Venables and Robert Thompson had just become the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century and the youngest to be convicted of murder in Britain in 250 years. And in the more than 25 years since James was murdered, there is still no understanding as to a motive. What do you all think the motive may have been? If I were to guess, I would say that they were both just mean kids who wanted to bully and pick on a baby. And I feel like they encouraged each other to keep going, to try and top what the other had just done, to see who could go the furthest, who was willing to do the worst of the worst to James. Sounds kind of bizarre when I say it out loud, but I don't know what else to think about these kids. It would be the same thing I would think when kids are cruel to animals or bully their classmates. And I think these two took things too far. And once they realized that, they needed to cover it up by placing James on the railroad tracks to make it look like an accident. And this is what brought this whole thing to another level of depravity. So being sentenced to serve at Her Majesty's pleasure, standard for juvenile offenders, It is an indefinite sentence with no maximum, but it does have a minimum sentence requirement which is determined on a case-by-case basis. And in the case of Venables and Thompson, the minimum would be eight years, taking the boys to the age of 18. It would be at this time that they would be assessed. If it were found that they would no longer be a danger to society, then they could be released. The judge made this recommendation of eight years, but not long after the trial, Lord Taylor of Gosforth, the Lord Chief Justice, recommended that the boys should be made to serve a minimum of 10 years, making them eligible for release in February of 2003, when they would be 20 years old. The Sun newspaper circulated a petition that garnered more than a quarter of a million signatures for the Home Secretary Michael Howard, 
to increase the sentences of both Venables and Thompson. And the petition campaign actually worked. And in July of 1994, Home Secretary Howard announced that the two convicted murderers would be remanded to custody for a minimum of 15 years. This meant that they would not be eligible to be released until 2008. And by that time, they would be 25 years old. However, the Home Secretary's intervention and increasing of the minimum sentence was heavily criticized as being a type of institutionalized vengeance perpetrated by a politician with a personal agenda. Therefore, in 1997, the House of Lords overturned the increased minimum sentence of 15 years, ruling that it was unlawful for the Home Secretary to be the one to make decisions on minimum sentences, especially for offenders so young. Following that, the High Court and the European Court of Human Rights had since ruled that even though Parliament may be the ones to set minimum and maximum sentences for the various categories of crimes, it should be left up to the trial judge, who has the benefit of the wisdom of all the evidence and testimony provided at trial from both the prosecution and the defense, and that it should be up to that judge to decide what the minimum term should be in an individual criminal case. So Thompson was housed at the Barton Moss Secure Care Center in Manchester, England. Venables was housed at Vardy House, a small eight-bed unit at Red Bank Secure Unit in St. Helens on Merseyside. However, the locations of where the boys were being kept was not made public knowledge until after they were released from custody. What would go on for the years to follow would be to reach one singular goal, to prepare these boys for when they became men and ready to be released into the public with new identities and new life stories for both them and their families. Their relationships with their families were maintained during the years that the two were in custody to make sure that their futures after they served out their sentences would be set and the transition as easy as possible. They were provided with the most expert care even in the face of having committed the most heinous crime in contemporary British history. During their time in custody, they were given the chance to just be kids. Thompson, under a veil of anonymity, had been taken to see Manchester United play at Old Trafford. He saw the Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford-upon-Avon, as well as to a visit a number of malls in Manchester and Sheffield. Venables, also under a veil of anonymity, had gone to pubs. He was able to play five-on-five football, rappel down cliffs, to go on trips to go whitewater rafting. Both Venables and Thompson were given the opportunity to continue their education. Venables, having earned six general certificates of secondary education, or GCSEs, and Thompson earned five. And for those of us outside of the British territories, GCSEs are a set of exams taken by students between the ages of 15 and 16 following two years of study. Some students may be given the chance to take these exams earlier if their teachers feel like they're prepared for it. The majority of students taking the GCSEs typically study between five and 12 subjects. 
Most schools require that a student pass five or more GCSE exams with a C or better before they can move on to study A-levels. Both Venables and Thompson had A-levels. And A-levels is short for Advanced Level General Certificates of Education, usually taken during the end of secondary school after the GCSEs are completed. So the boys earn their education while in custody. The sentences for Venables and Thompson had been rolled back by Lord Chief Justice Lord Wolfe to eight years based on the findings of their psychiatrists, with reports that read in part, quote, Venables has made exceptional progress with personal development, acknowledgement of the enormity of his offense, understanding his actions as a child, and in his normal adolescent development in abnormal circumstances. Of Thompson, his report said in part, quote, Robert has made exceptional progress in his current placement with regard to maturity, education, and insight gained in therapy. Robert accepts responsibility for the grave acts that he committed in the offense and shows great remorse for the pain and suffering that he caused. In 1999, attorneys for the boys launched an appeal to the European Court of Human Rights that their trial was not impartial, that it was unfair to their case since they were too young to understand the proceedings taking place in adult court and that the trial was inhumane and degrading to the defendants. The European court dismissed the claim about being inhumane and degrading, but they did uphold the claim that they were denied their rights to a fair hearing due to the nature of the court proceedings. The European court also held, as I mentioned earlier, that Michael Howard, stepping in to raise their minimum sentence, caused a highly volatile situation, leading to a judgment that was unfair. So, on the 15th of March, 1999, the court in Strasbourg ruled 14 to 5 that there had indeed been violations of Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights in terms of the fairness of the defendant's trial, stating in part, quote, the public trial process in adult court must be regarded in the case of an 11-year-old child as a severely intimidating procedure. James's parents made an appeal themselves to the European Court of Human Rights six months later in September of 1999, claiming that the opinions of the victim of a crime should have the right to be taken into consideration when determining the sentence of the perpetrator of the crime. But the European Court, led by Lord Chief Justice Wolfe, was not persuaded by the Bulger's pleas. He reviewed the minimum sentences of Venables and Thompson, and more than a year later made the recommendation that their sentences be reduced from 10 years to 8 years. The argument was this. The government had spent a great deal of time, effort, and money in working with these two boys when they entered into the criminal justice system. They were educated, counseled, rehabilitated, and had glowing recommendations from their respective psychiatrists. If they were to continue to be kept in custody, they would have to be moved from the juvenile facility to the adult facility. And the fear was that all the hard work that had been put into rehabilitating Venables and Thompson would be undone in an environment that would most likely be corrosive. 
So after a six-month review of Venables and Thompson's cases, the parole board ruled in June of 2001 that the two of them were no longer considered a threat to public safety and were eligible for release immediately, as their eight-year minimum sentence was up earlier that year in February of 2001. The Home Secretary, David Blunkett, approved the decision of the parole board and within a few weeks of that ruling, John Venables and Robert Thompson were free on what was called a lifelong license. In other words, they were basically on parole forever. The two of them, now men, were given brand new identities, brand new life histories, and they were moved to secret locations similar to a witness protection type program. They were given brand new passports, brand new insurance numbers, brand new certificates with their qualifications on them, and all new medical records were doctored up for them as well. Blunkett also added that he be given updates on the daily activities of each man. As a part of their release, there were certain conditions that they needed to follow. They were banned from going anywhere near Merseyside. They were absolutely not allowed to contact the family of James Bulger. They were each given a strict curfew and needed to report regularly to their probation officers. If they were to break any of the terms and conditions of their release, or if they were found to be a risk to public safety, they could be sent back to prison. A worldwide injunction was imposed on the media following the murder trial, which prevented the reporting of any details about Venables and Thompson and this injunction was kept in place following their release on parole in order to keep their new identities and location secret, as there was considered a very real and strong possibility that their lives could be in danger if it became known who they were, the killers of James Bulger. Not a very well-liked couple of guys in England, that's for certain. I am going to bring part two of our vacation series to a close at this point. We are going to have to go on to part three and hopefully get to the finale of the tale of James Bulger. Next time, we are going to talk about how we feel in regards to keeping the identities of John Venables and Robert Thompson a secret. I asked about it on Facebook and on Instagram, and I wanted to share some of your answers, but we will have to get to that in the next part. We will also discuss whether or not justice was served for James and his family. We will talk about where Thompson and Venables ended up in the years following their release and where they are today. And I also want to talk a little bit about a couple of the boys who were the ones to discover James on that railway on that Valentine's Day more than 25 years ago and what became of them. I am hoping to have the final part of this series out for you by this upcoming weekend. In the meantime, join the discussion on the Facebook page where we will talk about this case as well as others that we have covered, other podcast recommendations, and all things true crime related, or whatever other topics you can think of. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I would also like to apologize for the confusion about the KD2 Patreon exclusive group 
And I hope my posts on Patreon and in the only official California Dreaming discussion page help to clear things up. So if you are a Patreon supporter and you are still in that group, it is inactive and will no longer be affiliated with this podcast or its supporters. So feel free to leave and we can discuss Patreon related stuff on the Patreon site or you can message me privately on Facebook if you like or feel free to post in the official discussion page. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of an eclectic group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 41 Owned, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podians. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, you can do that too. It's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for joining me for the 67th episode of California Dreaming. I hope that you are enjoying the vacation series as much as I am. Stay tuned for part three of this tale. And until next time, sweet dreams. Canada, the Great White North, a utopia of manners, health care, and big-hearted people saying, hey. Sadly, that place doesn't exist. I'm Jordan, and on my show Nighttime, I uncover a version of Canada that is far darker than the one used in advertising to sell coffee, beer, and cars. The Canada I discuss on Nighttime is a twisted maze of crime, missing persons cases, unexplained events, and stories that prove Canada is not what they want you to think. If you want to join me, subscribe to the Nighttime Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else. You've heard the stories about murder and homicide. But what about the rest of the crimes committed daily? What about the police officer who robbed banks during lunch? Or the multi-million dollar diamond heist? What about the assaulters, stalkers, and arsonists? I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a new true crime podcast that tells the stories of non-murderous crimes. Season 1 has begun, and new episodes release on Mondays. Mugshot can be found on most podcatchers and on social media at the handle at MugshotPod. I hope you'll join me, but until then, be on your best behavior or you'll end up with your own mugshot. Mugshot.